Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Welcome to Life on Mars, the podcast of Mars Space, where we talk entrepreneurship, technology, and innovation. And today we've got our very own first guest for 2021, Pau Ramon, CTO at Factorial. Welcome to the show, Pau. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing fine. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great because this is the first podcast we record in 2021 with a guest. I recorded one talking about our 2020 recap last week, and uh, we're back to interviews. And this one's very special because we're going back to Rails. We haven't talked about Rails. We haven't talked with the CTO for like six or seven shows. So I think it's it's great to go back to to uh, nerding out a little bit in this episode. How often do you talk in podcasts or interviews or events about about technology power? Because uh, CTOs technically they don't get out of the cave that much, do they? Yeah, um, I, I used to do that more often, and I was pretty involved in several development communities and so on. But then I, I became a parent, and everything there was of ours was a bit uh, of a stretch for me. So on the last three years, I haven't been that involved. Uh, although now, now of course, uh, if, if it happens like now during working hours, it's, it's perfectly fine. But I, I miss it a lot, especially development communities. That's where you meet the interesting people, and that's where most of the interesting hiding happens. So yeah. You've been, let's talk a little bit about you to give context to, to our audience. And you started developing more than 10 years ago. I mean, you've been also a founder of a, of a company in San Francisco that's called a Speaker. I wanted to focus on the last two companies you've been working on because we know them more just because we can relate to them. We, um, you were the, the CTO at Redbooth that formerly, formerly was called Teambox. That's something yeah. that we had used at the very beginning of Mars Space. We were <laughs> organizing our projects with Teambox at the very beginning. Then you rebranded. That was a really fun story that uh, Pablo Villalba told us. Um, and, and you became the CTO of Red Bull just because you had met Jordi, the former mm -hmm. CTO back then, yeah. who is now the CEO of uh, Factorial, right? So you yeah. kind of like took over <laughs> his duties twice. Can yeah, you tell a little bit the story, how you met him and, and how did you get into Red Bull? Yeah, so, so basically I was, uh, as, as you mentioned, I was, I was in San Francisco for three months. I mostly went there for a conference and stayed because, you know, like, in the States, everybody tells you, no, stay here, it's the land of opportunities. And, and I kind of got into it and I was trying to find a job. Uh, and at that time, I was basically coding for Teambox. Uh, so I was living with Pablo Villalba in San Francisco and he was offering me a couch and I was basically doing... That's very Pablo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I was the cheapest developer in the world, although yeah, a couch in San Francisco is expensive. But, but yeah, You're right. so I, I was doing that while, while I was looking for a job there. But a uh, short story uh, is that I, I had to come back. I didn't have a visa. No one sponsored me a visa. So I, I came back to Barcelona. And the most obvious option for me was to keep coding, but that's time for money. So I, I had a house here, so I didn't need a coach from Pablo anymore. Uh, and then uh, at that time, Jordi was the CTO, uh, but he left to, to become a CEO at ITNIC. And then uh, I basically was... Uh, the chosen one to take on on his on his role, um, then he he came back, and then we eventually both left and founded uh, and founded Red Booth, and I stayed with that role because I think it's the one that suits me better. <laughs> 
So you've kind of like taken over from him a couple of times, right? Because Red Booth first, Factorial, then he, when he created Factorial, I think it was in 2016, if I yeah. remember correctly. Did you join from the very beginning? Did you join a little bit later? How was it? No, Are I'm, you part I'm, of the founding I'm team? Actually, yeah, I'm actually a founder. So yeah. Great. So it, it was very clear initially when we started the roles of Bernard, Jordi, and me. So that was uh, written on paper even before we had the, the name. So that, that, that was very clear from the beginning. And again, like I, I know very well uh, my uh, uh, my characteristics are more aligned with being a CTO than not uh, other aspects of the business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's talk about that because a lot of people, you know, I, I get like ten to twelve people per week asking me for a CTO. Right? There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there. You know, we're involved with Startup Grind. We're involved with a lot of startup uh, communities in Barcelona, and. Because we're sort of one of the, the companies in technical reference in, in, in Barcelona, at least for Rails or for JavaScript, a lot of people come to us like, hey, can you find me a CTO? It's like, well, we don't do that. But you being a CTO, so what would be your motivations to join a company? Like, uh, has it have to be a technical founder, somebody you admire? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it yeah, what? <laughs> Of course, it, dep it depends a lot. It, it does help if the founder is technical, because then you can have a more honest conversation about what's expectation. Uh, in in my personal case, both Bernat and Jordi, they are engineers. They are developers. Uh, mm -hmm. So that really helps a lot. But that also makes the job easier for them, because they can evaluate uh, uh, the candidate. So they can they can uh, choose a city over another one, because they, they are technical themselves. A lot of people, a lot of business owners struggle because they are not technical themselves and you don't know what you don't know. So it's very hard for them to really connect with, uh, with the CTO and understand whether it's a lemon or an apple. Um, in terms of, as a CTO, what you look for, um, there's different things that come to mind. One of them is the stage of the company. So it's extremely different, the CTO role on early stage than the CTO role on late stage. So the, yeah. your functions are completely different. One of them is you have to be scrappy. You're probably paying below below market rate. You you have to pitch to investors. You have to do a lot of things that are interesting, but it's not uh, for everybody. And on a late stage, you are more of a systematic, process-driven uh, kind of. You have to do things. Um, you're not gathering. You're farming. So that's that's a very different uh, different approach. So stage for me, uh, it's important. I'm more of a of a of a starter than a than a finisher. So I, I prefer to be on on the initial stage of companies. Then um, in terms of salary, it depends. Because if you're joining the founding team, you're mostly going to negotiate for equity. So that's not that important unless you you do a CTO role as a mercenary or like just a, as a professional and you just want the salary. But most of the times when, when you're a CTO, you're going to basically bet your next uh, 10 years of your life. Uh, depends if, if everything goes well, you're betting your whatever amount of years of your life on a project. So the most important is the potential that you that you see on that project. Because you, you're not going to get rich with the, with the salary. You Like, I, I actually lost money on the first two years in, in Factorial. <laughs> so I had to... I had to you invested, uh, you invested. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. But in terms of salary, it wasn't, it wasn't my, my, best, uh, my best thing. But of course, it's a bet that you're doing on the, on the, the long term. Yeah. I don't know if that answers. And how the about the technical challenge? I yeah. totally answers the question, but I got a couple two more, uh, like a couple, a couple more uh, yeah. things to add up to that. Which is one of one of them is a technical challenge, right? Because sometimes people are looking for CTO co-founders and and their project. To be honest, is 
very easy. It could be like done with a type form and Zapier and something else. You don't really need a CTO for that. And if you're hiring a CTO too early in the company, maybe that person is not the right person later on. And you have jeopardized the CTO role and position and even shares in the company with somebody who probably was not the like the right CTO all along, right? So uh, can you tell us about the, the what kind of challenge would you be looking for in a new company, right? How do you evaluate that? Yeah, so I mean, that's that's hard to measure because sometimes when you join the, the boat, you don't really know exactly what you're building. Like Correct. It, took, it took us three years to, to to find product market fit and we tried a lot of things. So it was not very clear. Yeah, yeah, factorial. Uh, so it was not very clear to me exactly which kind of technological challenge uh, I, w- I would find on the way. Um, that being said, um, I think there are, there are CTOs that maybe are more techy and they are looking for more edge technologies or problems like machine learning and things like that. I'm not that sort of CTO. I do believe the biggest challenge usually is to survive. Uh, and that mm-hmm. means being able to hire uh, a good team to basically pitch to investors when you need uh, when you need money you know like it's uh, like for me it's more the survival of the first year was the, the biggest challenge not that much the technical one so i i i'm not that attracted on on those big gigantic technical projects i'm more attracted on building a business and building a, a great team yeah, because there are several kinds of CTOs, right? There's a scrappy CTO, there's a hacker CTO, there's a political CTO, there's a fundraising CTO, right? Yeah. There's more like a people-oriented CTO. There's a lot of them. People tend to think all CTOs are equal, but truth is they're not. Uh, how about, you know, when you join a company, when you, when you join Redbooth, uh, I want to I circle back to that a little bit before we delve uh, farther into Factorial. Is yeah. You join a team that was already existing, you had already a technology, but you join as a CTO, right, if I remember correctly. So how do you... Um, how do you take the decision of keeping what works? How do you inspect it? Because normally a CTO goes into a company like, what the fuck is this shit, right? And it just like, uh, just takes a look at everything, analyzes audits. It's like, oh, wow, wow, wow. Why are we doing these processes? <laughs> and the temptation is to change everything, processes, team organization, tech stack. Um, how did you face this situation? Yeah, I'm. Uh, so I, it was a difficult situation for me because, I mean, usually people have a lot of loyalty to whoever hired them. So there's this kind of a link between the, the employer and the employee. And in that case, uh, a lot of the team had to transition from reporting to Jordi to reporting to me, and I was quite mm-hmm. new at the company. So there was a lot of uh, trust that I had to gain from the, from the current team. So, of course, what no one wants to do is to arrive to a project and say everything is scrap and, and let's start from scratch. I've seen CTOs doing it. And that definitely does not help gaining the trust from the from the people who actually wrote that code. So on that case, there was quite a lot of uh, legacy on, on, on Red Booth, to be honest. Like there was a lot of transitions going on. Pablo was a guy with a lot of ideas, which meant there was a lot of MVPs and a lot of branches and things and so on. And chaos. Uh, <laughs> chaos everywhere. <laughs> but I, 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 I took the same approach as, as in Factorial, actually, it's to start start from starting point and, and changing one thing at a time and trying like having very clear where I want to be, but doing it incrementally and doing one change at a time and always involving the, the team uh, by communicating the vision. And, and then if the whole team agrees of the direction that you want to be, then everybody contributes on that path, on that journey towards like less technical debt or different infrastructure or whatever, you know, like whatever journey you, 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 or vision you, you, you have for the future. 
did you find any any sort of resistance from the team just because you joined as an you know as an external person as opposed to promoting somebody internally? Uh, Have you ever yeah, faced yeah, the situation? I uh, of course I did. Like it was it was tough in the beginning. Like that's uh, I mean and, and Jordi is a very well respected person. Like everybody on the team loved him. So of course the transition was not easy. If Jordi had been evil uh, or or anything like that, then the transition the transition would have been uh, much better. But Jordi was a very beloved CTO at Red Booth, so <laughs> I had to step up my game. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, how how do you keep the expectations of the team, uh, both in Red Booth and Factorial, in terms of because commu- you mentioned communication, right? Communication is very important, but we also know that communication is not the best skill of technical people, that including CTOs as well, right? Yeah. How do you manage this? How communicative are you? What are the best practices? What tools do you use? Like, what's the what's your organization like in this regard? Yeah, so I, I try to communicate a lot, uh, especially around around the technical vision. So I, I try to always document what uh, I think technically we should go. And I communicate it in a way that I involve the people. So I, I want to hear their point of view. I want them to also write with me that vision. Uh, and then we have several rituals that help us uh, have these kind of conversations more often. So it's, it's su- super important to make the space for these uh, conversations to happen. If you don't make the space, they don't happen. So one of them is obvious, is the one-on-ones. And on the one-on-ones, you need to have a very structured way to have these conversations going. You know, like, what do you feel could improve? What do you think right. we're doing wrong? So you, you want to ask these questions, trying to get this information from people, but also in a way for you to be able to reiterate over and over that uh, that product or, or technological vision. And then, of course, we have uh, different meetings that allow uh, people from the tech team to gather together because they usually are on different teams and they are taking decisions and so on. But once in a while, we want to put them all together uh, and discuss th- certain things that people have discovered on, on their on their individual teams. And how about let's talk about the technology, right? Because Red Bull, I don't know in your former companies, but Red Bull was well known for using Rails, right? And as you know, in our space, we're a Rails specialized consultancy and, yep. and, and JavaScript, of course. But we're very keen on using Rails, and the reality is, uh, it, it's a big contrast with the opinion out there. I mean, if you read Twitter, Rails has been dead for ten years, right? Whereas what we see from projects uh, coming in, like literally in 2020, 2021, we had been getting more and more requests for Rails projects just because probably the companies created six, seven years ago. Now they're big enough to start outsourcing and the big tech giants like, you know, Microsoft bought GitHub and and, uh, and Dropbox also like, you know, it's very big right now. And they also got Rails and then Spotify's got Rails. And like lots of companies have been acquiring other smaller companies that they, they use Rails, right? So the reality is like the corporations now use Rails. So yeah. what, would you, what would be your advice? How do you see this as like, does this, does this conflict from uh, with the vision from your team as well? Do you have Rails haters in, in Factorial and Red Bulls? Yeah, we, we, we have a little bit of everything. But uh, no, a funny thing is that actually a lot of people see myself uh, as a Rails developer in JavaScript. But uh, mm-hmm. actually my on my previous jobs, I did PHP, I did Node.js. Uh, then mm-hmm. at Red Booth, I, I, I did Rails. And, and funny enough, in Factorial, the initial idea was not to use Rails. <laughs> it was actually the MVP I built it on, on Elixir. Uh, and, and for, for one reason, eh, like when, when you choose the, the technological stack, a lot of engineers will tell you the right tool for the right job, but that's that's often very difficult to measure. 
in my yep. case, I wanted to do a little bit what Red Booth did at the time. So Red Booth was very uh, novel in adopting Rails, and that allowed uh, us to get a lot of talent in Barcelona that wanted to yeah. work with the stack uh, when everybody was doing PHP and Java. So I, I, I thought probably the Elixir booth. would be that that new kind of stack, Elixir or Go. Uh, on Insight, probably Go would have been more successful. Uh, mm-hmm. But... Uh, that was my initial idea, and that 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 was my bet. Like, oh, by betting on Elixir, I probably can get uh, some developers that may want to work with this stack, and maybe they don't have so many offers on the table, so I may be able to recruit this initial team and and get going. Mm-hmm. That being said, I the MVP was done uh, between Jordi and me, and Jordi uh, very clearly told me I have no time to learn Elixir, Phoenix, and all these new things. Yeah. We need an MVP done in one month and we need to get the, the angel investment with an MVP and show it to some customers. So in the end, the only thing that we both knew enough uh, to do that MVP in one month was Rails. So by the end, the most efficient tool for us to get started was Rails and that's the stack that we ended up uh, settling uh, with. But it was not the initial idea. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the, the the strong points of Rails is precisely that you don't have to learn much stuff. Like it works, it's magic, and if you know it, it's very easy, and people love it, right? But yeah, but it's very interesting. I didn't know the story about Elixir, and in yeah. hindsight, it looks like a bad decision. But at the time, Elixir was like all the rage. Everybody was doing, everybody, uh, like yeah, both both yeah. was doing <laughs> Elixir. What was was passionate about Elixir, but. I think, like, from my humble opinion, right, uh, it hasn't really taken off as a technology for building the entire tech stack of companies. It's just, like, it's meant to be for something and still doesn't have the community, which is a pity because I I, I did some Elixir back in the back in the day yeah. and I was like, oh, I was liking it, but it didn't quite settle in the community. Um, but it's, what I, the reason I'm bringing this up, it's it's because one of the things we, we always get, you know, when, when talking to, to CTOs or CEOs of companies who who outsource their stuff is like, oh yeah, we work with this company and they use like this technology that then we couldn't find developers for, right? It's one of the main objections for outsourcing stuff is they chose a tech stack that is like not aligned with the company, right? So um, how did you calculate then the risk between using a new technology that you knew it had the potential, but it was not yet there and it didn't have the, the community, right? So how do you evaluate this? Um, and did you really expect to find to hit the scale-up stage in the company, and then how would you solve hiring Elixir developers? Because at the time, it yeah. must have been like 25 in Barcelona in 2016. So, of course, um, that's risk-taking. So that's that's only, uh, I mean, it's purely risk-taking. You're betting mm-hmm. your stack on the future of a technology, and you expect it to adopt certain uh, niche or even mainstream. On the case of Rails, it, uh, as you mentioned, it, it, it hit mainstream, and there's a lot of mainstream companies that ended up using Rails. But when we started uh, Teambox uh, back in the in the time, that was not yeah. so obvious. So it could ha- it could have uh, become a niche uh, technology like Closure in the fintech world or or Elixir, you know, like a, so, so, some technologies end up having a market, but there's a niche market. Some of them end up being mainstream. It's very difficult to guess that uh, when you're doing it. But as entrepreneurs. Uh, I think you, you you have to take these risks because when you start, you have absolutely nothing. So you have nothing to lose, like Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan says. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you, you have to take this kind of, you have to take these kind of risks. And that was a little bit the, the risk I was taking. Although after I set out with the most safe option, which was Wales, which worked pretty well for us uh, in the end. Yeah. 
but you started coding the Elixir uh, project or yeah. not really? That was okay. Well, so how I, much time I, I, I did, did it take very, to rewrite it? Uh, like I did a couple of weeks of Elixir uh, right. project. I showed some part of the MVP to Jordi, and Jordi was like, "Whoa, it's very cool!" But but can yeah. we do it in Rails, please? I just wanted to install device and and get going, you know. <laughs> And then in one month, we launched the MVP. So in one month, Jordi and me uh, were able to launch the MVP and put it uh, into some friends and family uh, companies. So they were, after one month, people were using the software already. So that's that's. That's, that's the productivity that you get with Rails. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one good demonstration because uh, most of the times we're getting from potential clients like, hey, how much time do I need this? Like, oh, I need this for two weeks. It's like, dude, you know, one month is a good example. If both the CTO and the CEO are proficient in Rails and coding, you can get an MVP in one month. Otherwise, it might take might take longer, right? So, and and you had your your idea of factorial at the time was really clear what you wanted to get because sometimes you know if there's multiple people in the project as in like client provider, client team provider, then the this get lo- gets lost in translation and maybe there's miscommunication about the the idea of the of the project, right? Yeah. And how does uh, then well, once you start building in in Rails, then you face strong competition from companies like Cantox, Novicap, and and uh, Shipstead in Barcelona. Shipstead, yeah. yeah. I don't know. And twenty six were were hiring Rails no, people, but, but, I, 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 but if you if it's you developers hire, in general, developers in yeah. general, and they they set they set up the bar with with salaries, you know, and they entered suddenly everybody yeah. was like, whoa, that's a big salary in Barcelona. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like like what, same happened with Skyscanner a couple of years back, yeah. and. King.com in like 2011, exactly. <laughs> things like that, right? Um, so, so how was the hiring? Like, was it hard for you? Is it hard nowadays for you to find to find Rails developers yeah. or not really? So, not not nowadays, but the first three years it was extremely challenging. Uh, so, of course, when yeah, when you have only angel uh, angel money in the bank, you have to mm. be very careful about how you spend it, and making uh, bad hires can completely destroy your company. So, as I said, like mm. in the beginning you're most concerned on surviving than not to achieve uh, certain goals. So it's more of an infinite game than a, than a finite one. And mm-hmm. so that's that's a, a pretty complex scenario. But I always think at every stage of your company, you must craft some sort of message uh, of why joining your company is, uh, is the best uh, option for certain engineers. So you have to find your niche and you have to hire very aggressively on that niche, uh, mostly outbound, which means finding the engineers and go uh, and contact them. So mm-hmm. for instance, for the first engineers, it was very clear. Uh, we had a very strong vision. We think this, this product is going to be amazing. If you have entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurial vibes, you've got to love to see the inception of a startup like this one. We experience entrepreneurs, just join us and you will learn from us. So we attracted some developers that were not just for the tech, they also were very interested on seeing uh, a company to, to start and they accepted a uh, lower market rate uh, in exchange for that for that learning. As the company grew, we oriented more on a work balance uh, message, which uh, I truly believe on. And I think mm-hmm. actually in Mars Base, I think you also promote a lot of that. Yeah, right. uh, so we were able to track very senior uh, Rails developers that were maybe a bit burned out of the startup scene of the crunching hours and and delusional uh, CEOs and things like this. And mm. we kind of promoted this healthy working environment that that uh, attracted these, these, these senior developers. 
which also some of them I have to admit happen to be on my on my network from from previous jobs. So that also right. helps. Yeah, that's a good point because a lot of people like uh, there are several kind of developers, right? We said that there's uh, different kinds of CTOs out there. Same happens with developers. Some developers they want to be job hoppers and they want to just jump on the coolest startup and yeah. you know then Typeform raises uh, money. Then I'm going to go to Typeform. Then there's like um, Glovo. Then this Factorial, whatever. And then they will jump to the next adventure, right? But some of them they just want to be stable just because they hit a certain point in life or just because it fits more their mentality. And it's true, like uh, most of the developers we've hired at MarkSpace, they come from our previous network at previous companies or people who want to be more stable. They've been doing freelancing for a while or they have tested the startup thingy and they're like, yeah, no, but like I want to have a more stable life. Yeah. So that's a great advice for people wanting to hire real developers or developers in general. It's like, look at your previous companies, somebody who you have worked with and a Two or three hires we've done, they didn't know Rails in the beginning, but they were good developers and they're like, yeah. they're going to learn it, right? Same for us. Eh? We, we, don't, we don't hire for the whole stack. I mean, we only hire full stacks, uh, which we call it full stack on attitude, not on knowledge. So it means people who don't, uh, don't mind touching anything. So it doesn't yeah. mean that they are specialists on front-end and back-end and infrastructure and everything like that. No, no. Like hmm. Usually people are strong in one skill, maybe one and a half, two if you're lucky, but it doesn't matter. The, the challenge for us is like people who are willing to touch other technologies and other uh, segments. So sometimes we have people that are very strong on JavaScript and they learn Rails on the job. Like usually within one month, they, they are pretty much ramp up. So that, that's and that's not a concern at all. And sometimes it's the opposite. We have people on, on Rails and they are willing to learn more about front-end or, or React and, and things like this. So yeah, that's, that's, that's fine for them. Yeah. What's the technologies you've got in the company? Yeah, so it's it's mostly a Rails monolith on the on the backend. Um, although it's a, we get quite inspired by by the Shopify architecture, which basically we separate the monolith with different dom domains, and then each domain talk to each other through, through an event bus. So it kind mm -hmm. of resembles a microservice architecture, but uh, being able to cheat and they uh, all the domains share the same database, which allows us to have a very relational model, which is important for us. Mm -hmm. And then on the front end, we have uh, it's a single single web app, so it's a React application, and also we have the React Native application. They both consume the API of Rails. And then on Infra, we have, uh, non-surprisingly, everything on Amazon. The <laughs> Nowadays, the credits that you get from, uh, from Venture Capital are so generous that you can mostly not pay for Amazon for the first six years of existence. And... Yep. you're like super locked in and then eventually you, you pay a lot and then but you yeah. pay a fucking lot yeah, <laughs> That's yeah but you know Jeff, Jeff Bezos is going for the long run and there's uh, he can afford it yeah, yeah exactly uh, but yeah everything on Amazon and uh, and we have everything on Docker we use we don't use uh, Kubernetes we, we're a bit different on that on that sense we we use right, the, right. Hashi, the, the HashiCorp start, uh, stack so we we use Nomad we use uh, Consul and all, all that stuff but yeah all right. That's more or less it. Very simple stack, actually. No, no, there's nothing very flashy. Yeah, but then I wanted to ask like very specifically about front-end, right? Because it's yeah. one of the major concerns in companies, especially nowadays where a lot of people take decisions as opposed to more like the previously known and used top-down decision-making in which you know the CTO or whomever, whoever in the company is so like, okay, we're going to do this and Angular and that's it, right? Or, well, back in the day, it was just 
pure mm-hmm. Java and Spring and whatever, right? But um, nowadays, it seems that a lot of co- a lot of technical decisions in the companies come bottom up, right? Does that happen in your company? And if so, specifically for front end, where we see a huge dispersion of frameworks and libraries, and always wanting to try the new shiny things like Tailwind right now for CSS, right? Yeah. So, how do you manage this, and what's the situation in the company? Yeah. So I'm. I'm um, there's a lot of questions involved on in that question. I always so, ask a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> Let's so break I'm, them I'm down. Gonna, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with JavaScript uh, as, a, as yeah. an ecosystem, and, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into decision making of Stack. Let's so, do it. Let's so do it. JavaScript as an ecosystem was extremely volatile uh, before 2016, but on 2016 when we started, things started to settle down. So mm-hmm. um, React was becoming kind of the most famous uh, framework uh, right. and this kind of consolidated, although Vue is a, is a very powerful second, uh, mm-hmm. but it kind of got consolidated that if you're betting on React, you get a lot of developers that have experience on that, you get uh, a rich ecosystem. So that was a very fine bet that we that we did early on uh, and it turned out pretty, pretty well. And there's also the things that have settled down such as TypeScript, uh, the usage of Webpack, Babel, like tooling. So I, I do believe the volatility has decreased a lot. So it's not as before where you could bet all your company on Backbone and then three three years later, uh, yeah. Backbone disappeared. Out of Ember. Because, uh, yeah, <laughs> Ember. Although Ember kept kept the niche. So that yeah, as, for as, a while. as long as at least there is a niche, you, you, I think you're fine. But some of the technologies... And for Rails, it was better, right? Like it, yeah, it was yeah. better combination, <laughs> but... Disappear. Yeah, Sorry to but, break uh, you up. But I, I think I think volatility has decreased a lot on, on front end. So so that's that's super good news. Um, like this, decision making is less risky right now. And now in terms of decision making at factorial. So of course, um, people are extremely opinionated by the decisions that we're taking early on, because the more you build on top of it, of it, the more difficult it is to get away of. Uh, for instance, early on we bet on flow instead of TypeScript. We were big fans of uh, gradual typing. I really like typing, but I don't like the cost of it. So gradual yeah. typing uh, strikes a good balance to me. And Flow uh, was an excellent tool back in 2016. But it turns out that the whole in the industry in, industry went uh, with TypeScript instead. So nowadays, not many people use Flow. Most of people use TypeScript. That was difficult to guess in 2016. But it's a change that, for instance, a lot of people at Factorial want uh, want to, to make it happen, but it's difficult for them to make it happen because of the amount of flow that we have in the company. So there's a lot of initiatives that come from developers, but sometimes it's not easy to find the time or to find the, the excuses to uh, take on those big technical challenges. That being said, uh, we do have uh, a space for people to uh, propose, and, and these are like the RFCs, like every, every developer, once in a while, they open a request for comment and then basically involve the whole uh, tech organization into taking these this sort of decisions. And that's uh, that's working pretty well. But there's an underlying truth in what you're saying. It might be hard to swallow for people because <laughs> non-technical CEOs, they think that they can make all the mistakes in the world because, oh, my product's going to change. I'm going to iterate. I'm going to like ask questions. I'm going to go lean startup. 
but the CTO needs to nail it with the tech stack from the very beginning, right? And that's that's something that we see. Like, it's not right. It's absolutely not right. Like, I think that what's normal is what you're saying. You chose, you wanted to do Elixir, it didn't work, and it was um, this instead of uh, TypeScript. And that's what happens in every company. But non-technical CEOs will not understand this. And that's precisely, in turn, why most of the times they will not be able to find a CTO, right? Because I was like, well, if you can't understand the complexities of software, that doesn't mean you have to learn how to code, but you need to understand the cost of changing that we're going to fuck up, that we are going to take some decisions that if you change the product too much, my assumptions will not work anymore, right? <laughs> so every time, how do you, it's easy to work with Jordi because he's a developer, right? Yeah. <laughs> but how would have you explained that to a non-technical CEO, right? It's like, oh, you changed the product so much. Now I cannot use this technology. It's not the right fit, right? How would you go about it? Um... Yeah, that, that's that's a difficult one. I mean, if the if the I mean, I've I've worked with CEOs that were not technical, but they need to be intelligent. So, like, I think an intelligent enough person is able to understand that as you as you progress on a company, it's kind of a, like in your life, no? So, when 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 I was twenty year old, everything fit on a backpack. I could go to San Francisco. I could go traveling. And yeah. uh, with just one backpack, I could go around. I had a lot of freedom. I could make decisions very easily. But nowadays, if I want to move a country, I need uh, to sell a house. I need to find a new kindergarten. I, I need to do so many things. The cost of change now is so much greater because I have more dependencies. So I think that works equally hmm. on a business. As you grow on a business, that's, you get customers, good. you get features, you get all these things that are cool because then, uh, you know, those are assets that you have as a company. But each one of these things also slow you down uh, in, make, in making decisions because then, you know, it's like having a car. If, if you have a car, you have to sell it if you want to move abroad or, or something like this. So I, I would compare it. I would use that, that metaphor probably that uh, you, the more dependencies you have, the more difficult it's to make change. But you need these dependencies in order to grow a business. Uh, although there's ways to minimize it, uh, I guess, as well. That's, that's also the job of the CTO, trying to... Uh, encapsulate these dependencies as much as possible. So, yeah, that's that's a good analogy. But actually, you're more than four years in, if I recall correctly, now at the Factorial. So, do you envision that you will need to change significantly your tech stack in the near future, or not really? And and what's what's the predictions? So there's there's a big investment, and and that and that's again comes down uh, um, to that technology vision that you have to have very clear. So. Mm-hmm. Biggest challenge for Factorial is that HR is not a global. Uh, it's not a global uh, problem. It's a local problem. Uh, so when you want to serve French customers, Spanish, Mexican, American, English, and so on, it's not like a task management tool where you just you just make it once and it works everywhere. You have to make it ad hoc for each country because they have different compliance and law and so on. And that's extremely difficult because, as we mentioned before, and um, you get dependencies and then changes are difficult to make. So maybe if you want to make French customers happy, how do you do that without making Spanish customers unhappy? So there's a lot of these uh, technological discussions going on. So there's, there's a technological vision that we had very clear from the beginning together with uh, with Cesar, who is the, the, the person-leading product. Um, and we work together very close to nail that uh, product and technical vision, which is mostly to have a layer of, of abstractions that allow us to build on top. So that's one of the biggest investments we are doing. And that means that a lot of things that we built during the three first year, we have to 
completely put them down and rebuild them, uh, rebuild them differently. So we we're doing that at the moment. We did a lot of uh, effort last last year. We're doing it also this this year. We have to finish some some other things, but and uh, that's that's the biggest investment we're doing. And it's constantly renewing uh, all the uh, all the code that we that we uh, produce in the in the past. So we constantly we're writing. We're changing the motor while the while the car is driving, and that's part of your of your job because you have to keep adding customers, you have to keep growing the business, you have to keep hiring people. But at the same time, the the technical pieces that you build in the past don't work for the future, and you have to replace them from scratch. But these these tech, these local or localized nuances are they mostly yeah. like back end or front end? Because it's a back end, and you got a monolith yeah. that might be hard to change. On the other hand, it's Rails, so yeah. it's they're, easy they're both, to sort of. Okay. So so like just an example, like as a as an employee in Spain, you may want to have a field for IRPF because that's something that works in Spain. You know, we have this tax system here, and in other countries yeah. they don't have it. So you need somehow a way to store this data on the database for Spanish customers, but you don't need it on, on French customers, but you also need mm -hmm. a way to display it. And maybe even uh, managers want a report of the IRPF of their employees, while that's not uh, something that the French customers uh, want. So you, you need this sort of abstractions both in the front end and, and in the back end to allow the product to be flexible enough to adapt to these different uh, local markets. Then is it, uh, are, are you guys building it on a multi-tenant architecture? How do you go about this? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's the case. It's a multi-tenant multi application. We don't do on-premise. Uh, that's uh, as easy as that. Like most SaaS nowadays. Okay. And how about like the dispersion of other, like, because every company ends up producing byproducts or side projects or test uh, ideas or pilots or marketing sites, right? Uh, how do you choose the technology there? Who takes the decision, and what are the technologies that you've uh, invested in? Yeah, um, so um, that's also a lot, <laughs> a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Why. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to stick with with marketing because I think that's one of the most interesting, and it's one where I would be most interested to learn about other companies how they are doing. So, ma marketing, for instance, it's one of these uh, things that are critical to a business because if no one Uh, visits your website, no one signs up, no one knows about your brand, then you don't get customers, then your product is completely useless. And yet it's something hmm. that uh, most of the time you don't optimize for uh, when you're hiring or when you're doing the stack for. So in, in our case, for instance, we were looking for developers that were very good at Rails, that were very good at React or both, uh, you know, and this, this kind of things. But then, of course, marketing team, uh, what's the first thing they ask? They ask for a WordPress. And we don't have anyone who knows how WordPress works, you know. And then there's the, yeah. the extension always about like, do we optimize for developers or do we optimize for marketing? Because marketing have their plugins, their way of working, their experience, and so on. Uh, you don't want to put them a tool they don't love doing. But at the same time, then our developers they don't want to be touching PHP because maybe that's a language they don't like, you know. So <laughs> especially this, coming from Rails, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that that that's a tension that I think I think happens in many companies. I I actually don't have that many that many answers. I have more questions and answers on that topic. I would be very interested to know how other companies deal with that specific uh, technological problem, which is the marketing stack. 
Yeah, and how about like the other side process, like tech hygiene, right? So how do you off, uh, how often do you revise all the projects going on? How do you keep them alive or not? When when do you do this kind of spring cleaning? Yeah, so um, that, that's that's a different topic. So we, we have we have a team actually that it's dedicated to. Uh, so it's, it's a team that it's not client facing. So they don't build tech for customers. They build tech for other teams, and they basically have a roadmap of all the technologies that we we have, like whether it's like versions of a different uh, modules or libraries or be abstractions that we build, that like we have certain abstractions and some certain internal libraries that, that we created ourselves. This team is responsible for keeping this uh, up to date and to improve those. So the, it's a dedicated team. In the past, it used to be um, that they had one day available a week to do this this sort of work. Before I I also tried to do like one week a month something like this. I tried many things, but in the end, I believe hmm. it's better to have a team with a roadmap and with objectives, and that they commit. Okay, this quarter we're gonna do this because this is gonna enable teams doing this and that, and we also want to deprecate this because this is slowing down teams. And they track certain metrics like how much time does it take uh, from a pull request to be opened to being in production because we want to be shipping like very. Uh, very fast and in, in, in quick iterations. So th th there's a team concentrated and looking only at this at this set of problems. And I think that works pretty well so far. That's something you don't hear much unless you're talking to like really, really big companies. So it probably the reason why is because if you got a team like that, you might be tempted to use them for your product when you need to speed up things, right? And you need to yeah. like go for a crunch or something. But how do you how do you avoid this to happen? Like how do you? Well, it, it, it does happen, but uh, it does happen. Yeah, yeah, it does happen, but it, it happens on a on a same way. So after all, okay. their calculated they're, risk. Their customers are other teams. So a good example is last last year we 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 built a new version of our payroll uh, product, and this new payroll version was built on top of our abstractions layer I talked before. So it uh, it was completely using new technology. So of course, when we exposed it to better customers, there were like issues, there were like bugs and things and so on. So a lot of these issues were done, were fixed by the platform team. So they kind of were fixing things for end customers, but actually what they were doing, they were improving these underlying uh, abstractions and technologies that were responsible for, for the bugs. So they they, uh, they were acting as a, as, as a proxy but they were actually improving the, the, the tech stack. So the, that's what, what they were doing, but through a customer-facing feature that, that was using those libraries and those abstractions. So, so yeah, it, 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 does, it does happen, but always keeping in mind that's the boundary and that's what you, what you touch. Let's talk a little bit to kind of like wrap up. I wanted to talk a little bit um, with, uh, with connection to keeping the lights on on projects, right? We, that's something we discussed in the past with one of the VPs at Amazon in one of our first episodes. It was super interesting to talk about yeah. tech hygiene, keeping lights on and keeping lights off, right? So he was actually actively working to kill projects because there yeah. had too many. Obviously, at Amazon, they must have like a fuck ton of <laughs> projects, right? How, how, about, how do you distribute time and resources in projects to keep them on, right? Like side projects or... Yeah. Or smaller that, tests. That's, that's one of the most overlooked questions, and I think it's yep. one of the most important questions you have to have an answer uh, at every stage because this will change radically as a company grows. Correct. So, 
for me the answer and, and and this is something i i repeat very often but it's key to me it's to work very close with your product uh, lead so that's extremely important that there's full alignment product and technology like you cannot you can have the best engineers you can have the best tech stack if you don't work closely with your product person and uh, there's no way you that you can have like a, a, a shipping organization like an organization that is effective and with that i mean uh, setting up processes for how do you come up with initiatives or projects or hypotheses whatever you want to call it how do you execute on them how do you kill them how do you keep the light zone as you said and setting these processes and in our case right now and this has been changing every single year because we've been adapting uh, as a company has grown and we mostly uh, what we have is we have autonomous teams and each one of the teams have an objective which means uh, as a management team we give them a direction and we say like as a team you have to go there and then you figure out how, how to do that then the team proposes initiatives or hypotheses that they want to validate through the quarter and those are the bets that they they're going to make so they say okay i have a quarter to which is the objective so i'm going to make these four bets that are very big these 10 bets that are medium and this whatever 20 bets that are very small every every mm-hmm. team works differently some some teams only do incrementalisms some teams do like bigger bets but more risky because they, they don't know the outcomes it's it's up to them and um, but they do commit to them which means we they set up the amount of time they want to dedicate on that bet because a bet after all it's money that you put on the table and expect an expectation of a return so maybe they say we want to dedicate four four weeks of this quarter into trying this thing out if it doesn't work we kill it so that's uh, that's very important for us what uh, what tends to happen is that we uh, negotiate scope so we may want to ship something very big in four weeks and we end up shipping something that's radically smaller if we find problems along the way in terms of keeping the lights on so that that's that's in terms of of new initiatives uh, like more strategic decisions and more like reaching the, the objectives in terms of keeping the lights on each one of these teams every week dedicates one person to what we call firefighting that's it's a role that most companies yeah. have which basically it's uh, a person looking at the backlog and that's a rotational uh, role so uh, every week right. every, the teams uh, dedicate some someone different and that's also i think it's great for developers also to get to know other parts of the code base because we we have a unique backlog we don't have a backlog uh, for each team also because teams uh, kind of are a living thing so we keep mm. one only one backlog and then everybody goes and and fetches uh, the most important tasks from that backlog which is created by customer experience which basically are the ones uh, facing customers and the ones who feel the pain when the product does not work All right. Um I I could be talking to you for hours about tech debt <laughs> and documentation and testing and other things that we haven't really touched on today and so I think we'll have to record like a second part but I want to be very very um thankful for your time. One last question before we wrap it up and I think this this always provides like good answers from people as we like to wrap it up by asking our our guests here what is the biggest technical fuck up they've ever done and if you can quantify <laughs> it in money. Yeah. Well, that that's a funny one. Yeah, actually mine mine is pretty is pretty funny. So It's pretty expensive as well. <laughs> it was it was not expensive. There was back back All right. back in place. But uh that was Let's go for it. When I was when I was a, a like super junior developer, I was I was working on Flash back then 
Uh, oh, rest wow. In, rest, rest in peace. Uh, just just been no. killed. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I was, I was mostly doing, mar- on a marketing agency, doing like flash games for, for right. Ricor del Polo and things like that. So <laughs> very, very special job. So I, I, was, I was working on a project and it was like a kind of a learning platform where people uploaded kind of like Moodle uh, kind of a platform yeah. where people mm-hmm. learn learning materials and so on. And I, I wanted to test changing a name of a, of a user. So I, I, I went to the console and I said, update user set name Paco. And, uh, and then I, I press enter without setting where ID equals one. So I rename all the users' uh, names to Paco. So suddenly on the learning platform, everybody was called Paco. And then I, I had to go to my boss and ask, like, do you have a backup by any chance? Because now how many people were in the? How many people were affected like by this? Tens of thousands, yeah, a lot of Pacos. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty common name, so yeah. <laughs> I, I right. don't know. It was a. <laughs> It was pretty funny. Yeah. It was a it was a good one. I think we can wrap it up here. As I said, like there are tons of things that I had on my list to talk with you, but uh, it's been super interesting. So thank you for your time. But you've got uh, you've got one minute. Um, let's use this. What's going on in your life? What's going on in Factorial? How can we help you? Well, I mean, the most most obvious thing is we we are hiring, and we especially are trying to hire more women. Like we we wanted to increase diversity. And that's becoming challenging. I'm trying to find as many as I can, but as you all know, that's a difficult topic. So if any is listening, just talk to me. Uh, we would like to, to have you on, on our team. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, thank you also to our listeners and see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye. We are Mars-based an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?